We are back for another episode this week, 17. Uh, Matt Stubbs, friend of mine through jiu-jitsu, um, just really interesting fella. He's one of those guys that everything he touches, he, he seems to do quite well at. Um, also a very hard worker, but he um, originally went overseas and won the world championships for jetpack riding. Um, he turned that into a bit of a bit of a job as well as now leading into um, his company Expect to Win, which is a I guess a social media management company um, based around athletes. And um, yeah, we just had a, a good chat to catch up and just see what his mindset is. Um, he's also uh, now doing long distance driving. He's always been around golf. And so this is sort of his niche at the current time, um, September. So most likely when this episode comes out, he'll actually be competing in the world champions for that championship for that, sorry over in America. So yeah, it'd be good to see how he goes. Um, but yeah, it's always nice with this podcast just to share the story of some interesting friends and that sort of thing. So I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. We're going to be saying here, um, the night before, and then probably head down and have a bit of a hit, or try to try yeah. to make a way around the course the morning <laughs> of. But um, yeah, it, it's it's such good fun. Like I definitely don't play often, but like mm. enough to get myself around the course. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely like it's so it's such a weird thing. I think we've actually spoken about this on the podcast before. Like it's a sport that a lot of people find as men, or like when they're like sort of that teenage years coming into adulthood yeah. and, and manhood and that sort of thing like yeah yeah a lot of guys stop playing competitive sport and still have that that itch to to do something and golf's great for that you can be competitive across a, a range of different levels and yeah it's just another addiction for us blokes it's, <laughs> it's so frustrating though because it's like do you ever become happy with yourself when you're playing golf like i feel like people are always just getting angry no matter how good they're playing <laughs> yeah golf's one of those things you can just never be satisfied with like it doesn't matter what level of golf you're at you you'll never be completely satisfied <laughs> yeah. with your ability because like, how, how's the system work so you've obviously you can play off is it scratch when you're at zero yep so talk us through it like we're idiots yeah. <laughs> um so the, the my current handicap's plus four yeah um so the handicapping system for men starts at 36 and then works its way down to zero. Um, so on that side of the handicap spectrum, once you finish your round, you're taking shots off your score yeah. to get your net score. Um, when you get to a plus handicap, you're adding shots to your, your score afterwards. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, so yeah, once you get down to your plus handicap markers, it, it's getting pretty pretty serious. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> Can yeah. It, does it just keep going or there's a certain point where you can't really plus anymore? I mean, theoretically, it keeps going. Yeah. Um, Things are like the lowest. What's like someone like Tiger Woods and stuff play on? Well, he was he was calculated at his peak to be at roughly plus nine. Yeah, right. And that was through competitions and and everything, like absolutely absurd level. Like, yeah, yeah. Like it's hard to comprehend quite how good that is. Like it's that means like literally every round was averaging nine under. Yeah, right. Mm. And then you can imagine at his at his home course what is what he was doing 
yeah on top yeah of that, do you want to just come come yeah. forward slightly on it yeah um yeah I, I heard something on rogan the other day he had a guy on and he was he was discussing that he was on a talent show at like two or three years yeah. old like just tonking him like and it kind of makes sense as to why he's so good when and even when he was going around the course with his dad, like his dad used to heckle him and like even yell out like racial slurs and stuff. He's like, you're going to, you're going to be at this point one day. Like you're going to have to be ready for it now. And yeah, it's, it's pretty wild how like those sort of outliers of, of athletes are made. Yeah. Like Tiger's, Tiger's someone I've looked up to ever since I started playing golf for his like just pure ability and, and work ethic and just how good he was. Mm. Oh, I think every young golfer, growing up especially around my age just completely completely idolized him so I've, I've read a lot about him and watched everything i can on him and yeah the mindset that he was able to develop at such a young age through the help of his father is definitely what what separated him from the rest and like that mindset led to his work ethic mm. as well as him being able to handle every situation in competition so you'd have to put him in the same conversation as um like the goats of their sport. How we're talking about Kelly Slater and yeah, Tom, Tom Brady. Brady and all that. Yeah, like he'd have to be he, up yeah, well, there with. He dominated for so long. Cause is he still playing? Or is he, he had a bad back for a while. Eh? Yeah, like, so he had his back injury. Came back from that. His most recent injury was the broken leg he suffered during a car crash. Yeah, yeah. Um, he is back playing now. Um, didn't do quite as well <clears throat> as he was expecting in his most recent events, but like he's Tiger Woods and mm. he's got records that he still wants to beat so yeah you can't you can't rule him out how old is he now he'd be in his 40s mid 40s Mm. i think yeah it must be so tough though as like an athlete of that caliber and then you set so many high standards and then to go away from it for a bit and then to come back like you're always going to be compared against yourself and like on such a massive scale because golf is it the biggest or the highest paid single athlete sport um, that's a good question. Like, there's know, definitely I, a lot of money. In it. <laughs> yeah, like he he became the first first golfing billionaire. Really? Recently? Yeah. Right. Um, so that's yeah, across his career earnings, endorsements, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there is a lot of money in golf, and yeah. it's only increased recently with the introduction of the Live Tour, and then the resulting effects of what the PGA has done to combat Live. Um, so the money is is ridiculous in yeah. golf at the moment, and it's it's only going to increase. The popularity popularity for golf is is still rapidly increasing, which is exciting. And then you got this supplementary sports like long drive and stuff like that mm. driving it too. So it's an exciting time for golf. So talk us through it. So obviously you've started when you were younger playing. It's transferred now into long driving. But when when did you start? What age? Um, so I started golf when I was yeah, I was like five or six. Um, we moved into the estate opposite Meadow Park. Yeah. Um, so I was able to walk to golf. Um, so parents didn't have to worry about me. I, I, I almost every day I was walking the one kilometre from the from the back of the estate. Our, our house was at, at that estate. It's just one long road. Yeah, yeah. And our house was the very last one. Yeah. So I'd have to walk all the way, like <laughs> five or six, cross the road and go to golf and play yeah. and practice, and then and then walk home. And my parents didn't have to worry about me. It was a a safe area safe neighborhood the yeah. diners of the course knew me um so that's how i grew up playing golf and yeah played a lot of golf through my junior years uh five up to about 16 17 <clears throat> um so uh towards the end of high school it was my goal to go to college on on a golf scholarship and then obviously do college golf and then 
pursue PGA Tour stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was yeah 15, 16, 17, uh, I was I was tracking I was tracking for it. I uh, had the numbers and the handicap and ability for that. Um, but the school I was at was very academically focused. Uh, Somerset College on the Gold Coast, great school. Mm. Um, and my parents also assured me that I needed to have a, a backup plan and do my education properly because mm. uh, you never know what's going what's gonna to mm. happen uh, in sport. Um, and just doing grade 12 and golf was, was very challenging. Um, especially with how academically focused school was, <clears throat> just so much time going into into study, um, and I had to put golf on on hold yep. um, to finish my education. And then once I finished school, uh, a bit of an issue with golf in Australia. Like once you finish your junior golf, there's not much in the in the interim. Right. Um, like you really have to. Like there's a bunch of high level amateur events and stuff like that, um, but it's pretty much just everything going towards becoming a becoming a pro yep um and i just kind of fell out of love with golf for a bit um so i took three four years off uh so i just pushed so hard at golf for so long to try and get to college in america and then and going from there and, and you feel feeling a little bit burnt out at that point yeah yeah i was burnt out with like both academics and and sport mm. um yeah, there's a lot of like pr- pressure growing up to I- excel um, through both of those from like family and and school, mm. um, and just yeah, just needed a break really. Uh, so I took a gap year uh, to try and work out what I wanted to do, and then uh, went to Bond Uni and did a bachelor of business. Yep. Did a bunch of sport there. Picked up rugby sevens. Was playing that at a high level. Um, yeah, really passionate about that. Um, was looking to take that to the to the next level. Started achieving some good results there, um, on basically no no real background on rugby. Uh, played some Queensland Colts and won some merit squads playing rugby sevens, and then did my ACL. Join oh, <laughs> the club. <laughs> yeah, and then um, yeah, when I recovered from that, that's when golf really really came back into the the forefront because it's low impact. Yeah, on the body. How do you go? Was it was it your left or right? It was my right. Yeah. So your back foot. Yeah, my back foot. And how'd you go when you're pivoting? Like obviously, just on any swing, is it? Because it's. So I, I believe I'm very fortunate that it was my right knee. Yeah. Um, especially mm. with long drive now, mm. and seeing the forces that ex- it exerts. If it was my left knee, I I don't think I'll be able to do what I'm doing now. Uh, I'll have limitations. And restrictions on my swing mm. and when you're trying to swing as hard as you can <laughs> you can't have any limitations yeah, yeah um yeah so right knees uh took me two or three years to re- recover properly because i was mm. mishap during the surgery um but i feel like it's it's 100 percent. yeah mm. getting past i oh, i can only speak for myself but getting past that the i guess the mental aspect of of having an injury like that is just massive and and to get to a stage where you finally can be moving around it's like it almost transitions into a point where like you're like oh like i'm, I'm actually back I'm, I'm here and i'm able to do the things i was prior to it and that sort of thing but yeah that was yeah that mental side was was tough because tearing my acl was was the hardest thing that i ever went through yeah in life like, at, at the time i was playing sport five six days of the week multiple times doing every sport competing as much as i can going to the gym 
like life was all about being active and like that's how I found my enjoyment and mm. love the challenge of sport. Um, and then I actually, yeah, so I tore the ACL playing touch footy, slight pot, pothole, step, oh. roll out. Um, yeah, so there's a story behind that. So I went, went, drove myself to the ER. Did you? Because <laughs> um, my, my mates that had done ACLs before, they're like, if you did your ACL, you'd be in more pain. You're sweet. Uh, like, clean break. Uh, I'll get I'll get to it. I've heard that's like like first fifteen seconds is super painful and then it kind of wears you, off a bit. Did you hear it initially? Like yeah, the, I heard a crack. Yeah. Um, I've, my pain tolerance has always been exceptionally high. Yeah. Um, so I put it down to that. And you've um, jumped, but you've jumped in the car. Yeah, I've driven myself to the ER. Um, because of the, the swelling, they couldn't do a correct diagnosis then. But two weeks later, I went to the physio at the hospital. He's done all these testings. He's like, oh, light meniscus tear. It'll heal itself. You'll be sweet. I'm like, no worries. So I gave it a month off uh, and just went back to playing sport. Yeah. At the time, I was playing Queensland Colts rugby. Uh, I was playing a lot of, lot of touch footy, uh, all my sports. Uh, and after every match, after every sport, it would blow up. Yeah. I'll go home, smash my omega-3s, my ibuprofen, <laughs> ice it up overnight, and then <laughs> wait for the spine to go down and keep keep playing. So I did that for six months, rinse and repeat. Um, and I was like, there has to be something else wrong with this. Like, it, it, this, is, this isn't right. Um, so I went back through the, the public health care, public health care system, saw another physio, um, and he, he was actually someone that graduated from my school four or five years earlier. So I had a relationship with him. Um, he did all these all these testings um, and was was blown away <laughs> at the misdiagnosis. Um, got me in for the MRI within two hours later. Checked the results. I was booked in for surgery the next day. Yeah, right. He's lodging internal investigations on how poor the misdiagnosis <laughs> was. So it was, yeah, complete ACL gone. Because yep. I've been playing on it for six months, it just gone from end to end there was nothing there yeah right so so did you have to use a graph from your hammy or yeah so they pulled the graph from the hammy um but then when they were reattaching the acl uh the the surgeon made a hairline fracture in the patella <laughs> um so the treatment for that is two months bed rest absolutely no pressure on your knee yeah which when you're trying to rehab an acl like yeah especially these days it's rehab starts day one um, so like the healing and rehab process didn't match up. So that caused more issues. And that's why my, my ACL recovery took two to three years mm. instead of six months. So. Well, trying to, trying to build that hamstring up because it's essentially just a hammy tear and yeah. then getting the blood, fl- uh, blood flow through movement. But if you can't move with it, exactly. that's just a yeah. concoction. Yeah, it was a nightmare. So yeah, <laughs> particularly those two months of bed rest after yep. being mobile and completely athletic my whole life was was tough to go through yeah how'd you deal with those times because they're um video games yeah (laughs) yeah so like we which is another story like during that period and i'm playing call of duty professionally did you um (laughs) like that's like that's what happens when i dedicate yeah (laughs) yeah so that was yeah that was an interesting 12 to 24 months playing Call of Duty 80 hours a week <laughs> when I had nothing else to do. Par- yeah. Parents hated it. 
Um, but I was like, oh, I guess I'll make a little bit of money for it. And it was fun. So, so. was that through streaming or something? Because that's kind of <laughs> like early days for even Twitch and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So this was, yeah, early days. This was like Black Ops 2 days. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's when, yeah, competitive COD started to take off like internationally. Yeah. It was still like relatively small in Australia, but there was platforms that hosted all your tournaments and matches and stuff. And yeah. And so you'd make money out of events on that? Yeah, not much, very, very little. It was mainly just for the, but the fun it's, of it. It's to, honestly time. like the ultimate goal of most teenage boys to <laughs> yeah. make money for playing Xbox yeah. or PS, like PS3 or whatever. It's all the money the boys are making, or people are making playing video games these days is. Because, yeah, in impressive. quotations, they're some of the highest paid like yeah. athletes. Or, yeah. what, what's the term? Action sports athletes yeah. or, or whatever it is. But yeah. So to go back to it, so at Somerset, were you doing a golf program through the school at all? Or how did they incorporate your, your training and your, I guess, your, um, your time doing that? I wouldn't know. So Somerset didn't have uh, like a, elite athlete programs at school. Um, they were very much dedicated to getting the best education you can which they do achieve every year they're in my opinion the best school in Queensland one of the best in Australia and still are um but no I had to find my own time for for golf practice and and playing and and stuff like that so yeah school didn't help me with so was that like you finished school head head down to the course sort of thing or yeah and um just spend weekend at the course Saturday Sunday um like as a junior the course I played was Rabina Woods mm-hmm. so so hilly I don't know how I did it <laughs> but I'll be walking that course two times Saturday two times Sunday and, and practicing um, but I mean when you're a junior you don't really think about it you don't get tired as a kid yeah yeah well, that's, that's happy to be us. out there yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so leading into you mentioned it before the long driving how's that come about is there something new or is it did you find you always had a strength in the actual driving side of golf or yeah um so it comes from my uh so long drive originally comes from when i was a junior i was i was i was really small like i graduated grade 12 at like five seven sixty kilos yeah um so for me to compete with the other juniors i would be having to swing my absolute hardest yeah to try and keep up with them um and then that eventually transitioned to me growing and putting on size um so that that ability obviously came with some extra speed um so like in terms of natural speed in a driver's swing i like i always had it um and like my coaches and mates were all, have always been like you need to do long drive you need to do long drive and then it was only recently that i found a comp close by and went and had a crack and yeah did pretty well now this was the PLDA in Brisbane that um one? so I've competed in four long drive events um t- two in the amateur division two in the professional division um yeah my first my first amateur event was outdoor at um at Virginia Golf Club uh, I got second as an amateur there um and was yeah pretty happy with with, with that result um going into like your first comp in a new sport was like a bit nerve-wracking um and not knowing how good the other athletes were i was didn't know what to didn't know what to expect um being getting a good result in that only lost by a couple couple of yards in the final yeah uh then went on to my second amateur event which was an indoor event um knowing what to expect a little bit of 
little bit more focus on it and yeah just blew the field away from there um and it was from that event that I, I spoke to the organizer of PLDA in Australia and we uh started working out some goals and going to world champs this year mm-hmm. so that was still only about about six weeks ago now um that I started long drive and made that commitment towards world champs yeah that's sick. so so when is that um so I'll be flying out on the 23rd of September mm-hmm. um to Vegas and the comps are 26th of September to the 1st of October yeah um yeah and then the whole last six weeks every life life's changed everything's been 100% complete focus on uh, becoming world champ what's the distance on the hits because you said earlier that you're at the driving range and you have to sit like 40 meters behind yeah everyone else <laughs> so yeah that's the that's the first question everyone asks <laughs> about about long drives like, oh yeah how, how, far you, <laughs> how far are you hitting it um it really is condition weather condition based like into downwind mm. hot air cold air um but that that amateur event i won with a drive of 368.5 meters um, yeah, the professional event I won a couple of weeks ago was into a strong headwind and that went 340. Yeah, um, right. I mean, if you get tailwind, you're, you're sending right <laughs> at 400 meters. So, I mean, as a long drive athlete, that's what, that's what you want when you turn up to the event. You're like, where's the Yeah. Wind? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Let's send it. And so it's not all outdoor, is um, it? No. So in Australia, uh, in Australia, we're, we're making a really strong push to, to grow the sport. Yeah. Um, one of the ways we've found to do that is indoor events for, for amateurs, um, just for anyone to come give it a crack because um, logistically it's it's a lot easier and you can get a bit of an atmosphere there, atmosphere there and mm. yeah, it's just a lot of fun. And then the big long drive events in Australia, yeah, outdoor ones. So what sort of training is going to, obviously you want to be hitting it hard and fast is, yeah. is the, the pretty simple stuff, but like what are the things that someone would overlook that doesn't know too much about it? Yeah, so I've been, well, I've taken this completely serious, like complete professional mindset towards achieving this goal. Um, so I've got a team around me that's helping me with all this. Um, and the, the three things that like separating it from everyone else is the trainer I have on board. Mm-hmm. Um, he's fortunately sponsoring me, Hayden Edgerton from Resilience Rehab and Performance. Um, he's a genius when it comes to elite athletes uh, and the program he's put together for me is one of the reasons why I've been able to improve so quickly. Mm. Um, he used to work with a, like the elite athletes at Canberra Raiders and now he's moved up here recently. Um, so he's on board. Um, and like the training program he's got me on, it's like five, six gym sessions a week. Uh, there's sprint training on top of that. Um, it's like long drive. It's not like just about being technically perfect or being really strong. Like you'll see guys in long drive, just like smashing bench and deadlift and squats. But like in our opinion, to be the best long drive athlete, you just need to be the best overall athlete Mm. possible. Mm. Um, in all regards so we've we've thrown in sprint training into there to get the body firing uh get the the bottom half as quick as and explosive as possible because it really isn't completely complete overall body experience doing long drive um and then yeah got a lot of rehab and recovery to keep keep the body together 
Uh, I've got my long drive coaching sessions, which are three, four times a week. Uh, and then specifically to long drive, there's speed training. Uh, we have like speed training drills and equipment that we use where you're not hitting balls. Mm-hmm. Um, you're using like these weighted clubs and stuff like that. And then, yeah, extra sessions outdoors, extra sessions indoors. Um, yeah, so I worked out the other day, like after you s- sent the invite um, to come on the podcast, I just started thinking about how much time I was actually putting into to training at the moment because yeah. like I've got my schedule all, all, all mapped out that I do and it's, yeah, it's r- roughly 50 hours a week. I'm yeah, wow. Putting into training and recovery. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't include the hour and a half each way to, to Brisbane for, mm. for those coaching sessions. So, yeah. Yeah, when I when I saw that, I was like, man, I haven't... Yeah, crazy, committed. I? Yeah. yeah. No, it's sick. It's, it's always good to see just someone really getting after and pursuing something that's really important to them but what's um like what's the layout of a competition look like is it you rock up and you get like a round or you get a few shots and that sort of thing as well and you is it yeah so you'll rock up and 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 do your first warm-up um and then depending on the number of number of competitors um you'll generally do all your qualifying sets so you get you get two qualifying sets of six balls Mm -hmm. and then that'll rank you going into the finals and the finals would be a man-on-man knockout knockout bracket um i think the format for world champs will be slightly different just because of the size of the event mm-hmm. uh, i believe it'll be round robin qualifying and you get points based on how you go in that round robin yeah um but you'll compete against a, uh, like a bunch of other guys and then yeah those points that you've got through your round robin qualifying will then rank you for the for the finals bracket i'm gonna be pretty exciting watching like just because you you don't really know where it's gonna how far it's gonna be until i guess it's measured yeah and like once if you like won hearing that you've won i reckon would be elite (laughs) yeah i mean yeah it's a a good feeling um in that last event i went to i my set was first um so i set the distance and then i had to watch the other bloke other black go yeah and, uh, you, you're seeing him ripping him and you're like oh that might have me and it doesn't you're like Phew. and you have to watch him watch him hit the next yeah. one and yeah it's pretty intense are you often getting guys that are just because you just swing and like is it ever you're missing the actual ball or anything because i saw a video you put up the other day and that when you broke your club yeah like <laughs> that i think the the ball ended up like sort of skimming off to the side and then there was this person in the background just like what's going on yeah i got a bit worried about that one so yeah the the club head's broken off on the downswing and yep. just hit the ground and i haven't seen where it's gone and like there was this poor little girl like the bay next to me i'm like if this club's gone shooting into her i'm gonna feel so bad because for anyone listening as well jump on what your instagram you have a slow-mo video and you can fully see like the clubs bending on both yeah. the like backswing and the forward swing yeah sort of thing. so i put that one down to put that one into super slow-mo so you can see it coming off but yeah, that's in my highlights on the story. I had yeah. to keep it there. It's a pretty, it's a pretty cool one. <laughs> yeah. so what's the difference between the clubs? Like, because you got you said before you have like your course driver. Yeah. And you got the long drive. Yeah. So a normal golf driver will be the shaft will be between forty five and forty six inches for starters, um, and then you'll have a head that'll be, I mean, if you're a long hitter, somewhere from eight degrees, if more 
intermediate and beginner players will go up to 11 degrees to help get it up in the air. Um, so the main difference between those and the long drives, the long drive clubs are 48 inches long uh, and the heads will be between three and five degrees. Right. Um, so those are the two main the main differences here. So are you, they a bit more like flimsier as well? or um, So the, the opinion on long drive shafts is actually changing a lot the last 12 to 18 months. Like previously it used to be just as stiff as you could possibly get it and you just swing in like effectively just this baseball bat yeah. at the ball. Um, but yeah, the athletes have really changed their opinion on what, what the best shaft is. So you'll see the top guys um, now are these Patterson shafts and they're using them like a whip. <clears throat> so that's what we're working towards for our swings now. So that when the club's coming down, the last like foot of the swing, it's just like a whip. Mm. Um, and that's where you're getting that extra speed from, yeah. Um, which makes it harder to time. But when you when you nail it, that last little boom just yeah mm. sends the ball. Can you usually tell, like in the short experience I've had playing, and like especially at driving range and stuff, like you can almost if you hit it, you can just tell off the sound. Is that is that something that you go off, or is it? Yeah, I mean, as soon as I hit the ball, I I know where it's gone and how well I've hit it without even without even saying it. Yeah. Um, yeah, all your all your top golfers, not just long drive, will uh, can can tell like straight off the the impact. Yeah. So what what tips do you have for terrible golfers <laughs> like us? That just in general things that can sort of help. Uh, I've always been told just keeping your head over it and like actually not trying to look up straight away once you've taken the shot. Um, yeah, that's I mean for your basic hand hand eye keeping your your eye on the ball's a a good starting point. Um. But yeah, just just keeping it keeping it simple, just pulling the the club back as, as straight as you can, and just smooth on the backswing and and through. Like there's, there's so many different ways that people swing a golf club. Like giving those basic tips is is pretty hard. Yeah. Um, like you see so many so many different people starting out swinging and. Yeah, you see some crazy things. <laughs> you, get the, you get the people like teeing off and they kind of turn a little bit because they slice it every time just yeah. to get it going. Yeah, straight. they have a phase. They start aiming more and more on <laughs> the left, yeah. Uh, that's unreal. So when, when are the dates for the comp again? Because I dare say this episode will be coming out around that point yes, in time. So we'll... Yeah, so the comp starts on the 26th of September. Um, that's local time in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so probably the 27th here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sick. We'll see what we can get up as yeah. well and share anything you send over. But yeah, awesome. um, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which you mentioned before, um, I think when we were having dinner earlier, and this is probably the only person I know has done this, and it's the Jetpack Adventures. How did yeah. that start? Like, um, Or do you want to explain what it is first? Yeah, so I fly a Jetpack, and people that don't know what the Jetpack is, it's the one that's in the water. Um, and if you still don't know what that is, it we use a jet ski a normal jet ski will suck up the water from the bottom and push it out the back so you go forward um, but we chuck a u-bend on the back of the jet ski which channels the water up a hose and then we attach it to our various jetpack devices and that's what gives us thrust to to go flying um, so i started doing that back in 2011 now um, so one of my good mates brought the first jetpack to australia um, he wanted to start a commercial hire business. Um, so heaps of people have done it. You'd come down and rent the jetpack and would teach you how to fly. Yeah. Um, so while I was at uni and just after uni, that was my full-time job. 
um, teaching people how to fly a jetpack. Um, and then after that, we got over the hiring it. So we started a jetpack events business. Um, so now it's our side business. So we just travel around Australia doing doing jetpack shows. So, mm. yeah. And once again, you've taken it to new levels <laughs> and it took you over to America. What was that about? Yeah, so back in uh, back in 2018, I went and competed in the, the Jetpack World Championships. I uh, went over to Naples, Florida and I uh, won, won that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would have been a goal for the previous three or four years leading up to that. Uh, I'd just seen what the athletes were, were doing in their competitions over there. Um, and if I if I do something, it's, it's to win it. Like I'm not gonna go and, go and participate in an event for the sake of participating in it. So I really took the time to dedicate towards jetpacks. I spent three, three four years uh, focused on it. Um, last six months leading up to the world champs really ramped it up um, brought some tricks to the sport that had never been done before um, and executed those in the comp and was able to get away with the win so yeah, you'd have was... to be pretty like like with your long drive overall athlete for the jetpacks I've, I've never done it but i'd feel like you need like good core stability to actually yeah. control it cause cause massive um like you really like at that elite level, you're really throwing your body like com- completely into it. Um, yeah, you also get like super jacked shoulders and and, and through the back. Um, yeah, it's because a- how, how is it operating? So in the photos, if anyone's seen it, you obviously got your handles in front of you. Yeah, are they operating either side? Um, like either thruster or what, what would you call it? The, the jets. The jets? Yeah. The jets, yeah. Um, so the two handles operate independently yep. and they're on a swivel that goes to the jet, which is behind your, behind your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, if you move those handles, they move the angles of the jets. Yeah. Uh, that's the most basic. And then the ski, is that is that they're just at full throttle the whole time or is it? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, at that elite level, the, the jet ski is just, they just hold the trigger at, at full and, and hold on. Um, yeah. Those high-level competitions, though, uh, you can get remotes, so there's no driver on the jet ski. Oh, true. Uh, you can operate it completely independently. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with the jetpacks, we usually keep keep someone on there. Yeah. So the, the person, a lot of logistical questions come into mind when you're saying you're hiring it out to people because I'm just expecting someone coming over like, foreigner that's on holidays they're like oh yeah that looks like fun what's the go there like how do you operate a business with yeah so i've i've taught thousands and thousands of people how to fly a jetpack um eight-year-old girl up to 85 year old grandmother um blind deaf every type of disability um the hardest ones were some specific nationalities coming over um, they'd rock up at the beach. They'd sign their waiver, and they're w- walking down to the to the water line in full dress shirt, dress pants, and, and dress <laughs> shoes. And we're like, "Are you gonna are you gonna get changed?" They're like, "No, I'm ready to go." And we're like, "You're gonna get wet." They're like, "What? <laughs> like, what do you mean I'm gonna get wet?" Oh, they watch other people fly, and they just they just think it's just gonna be instantly up and oh, flying right. perfectly, and it's it's not not always that easy yeah so are you are you or someone else sitting on the ski and just like if they've come off you just drop on the throttle yeah so we'll be on the jet ski instructing them through a uh, a radio to their helmet which they can hear us through um so yeah we'll be adjusting the power accordingly to 
to how they're flying. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did get very good at the process of teaching. Uh, I could have everyone up flying in under five minutes. Wow. Um, yeah, we refined that process over a lot of years. Well, I guess it, it is a selling point, really. Like, if someone's coming down to do it, that's really what you want the end goal to be. But yeah, exactly. When, when you're coming up, what's the sort of heights? Are you limited by the length of the hose, or is it like there's a certain point where you can't get further just because of the amount of power that's coming from that ski? Yeah. So, I mean, you're only you're like your your elite athletes would be flying at maximum power. Um, so we're running at 23 meter hose. Um, we found that above that, your height starts dropping off because of how the weight of the hose and the water coming through the hose. Yeah. Um, so 23 meters with your fully capable jet ski is probably your, your maximum height. That's like very high. That's too yeah. high because imagine just like, yeah, falling forward and then just yeah, straight it, head it, dive into the it, water. It is, it is high. So have you had some pretty bad offs like? Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't. Home mum doesn't watch this episode. <laughs> uh, I haven't told her about all the injuries that I've had through there. Um, fortunately, it's not gnarly stuff like broken bones and stuff like that. Um, but I've had some face down concussions in the water. Really? Um, training for, yeah, especially training for world champs. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, yeah, I wanted to go into world champs, uh, being able to backflip a jetpack. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the only one that's been able to land that in competition. That's what set me apart there um but the jetpack is made to like not backflip by the manufacturers right um but if you can imagine like the jetpack going up and i'm having to work out how to get it back over like this yeah and if you don't get it all the way around you're from 20 meters just getting thrust at full speed (laughs) into the water by your face yeah um yeah, so it had some gnarly, gnarly think, stacks like that. I think I saw a photo from one of the ones you did in Darwin or something up north, and you were actually you were getting outside because not only do you do this in like the Broadwater and stuff, yeah. you're actually doing it out of essentially a big blowout pool. Yeah, so we were we started that in Australia. Yeah. Um, so like some of our first our first shows were just in like resorts and hotel pools and stuff like that, um, like really shallow ones. Um, I mean, at the time, we thought shallow was a metre, metre and a half, two metres. We're like, this is crazy. You can't believe we're doing this. But then we transitioned to that because we wanted to be able to do shows anywhere. Like, if you want a show, we'll come and, we'll come and give you a show. So we found these. We started with a 10-metre diameter blow-up pool. We transitioned <laughs> to a 15-metre blow-up pool that we can take anywhere. Um, yeah, so that photo you've seen, that was up in Townsville, one of the shows um yes yeah, so we go set up the pool bring the water trucks in uh we fill it with 50 to 90 centimeters of water <laughs> and do the show um but one of the cool things about the jet pack that that people like is you can you can fly over land you can take off on land so i'll spend half the show 10 to 15 meters in the air outside of the pool over over the land flying around um, yeah, it makes for a cool photo, and it's just like that that wow factor of the jetpack. Yeah. Um, but if you're gonna crash out there, if you're gonna crash in the pool from that height, it, it doesn't really make a difference. Yeah. Um, it looks crazier and scarier, but I mean, you, you're breaking legs regardless. Yeah. <laughs> what's yeah. the What's the go though? Because I I'm assuming that as you're just pumping that water out of the back of the jets, like mm-hmm. the the pool's getting lower. Like what's your, what's the plan there? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's something we do have to monitor. If it gets below, if it starts getting below 50 centimeters, the jet ski will start bottoming out mm-hmm. and then that'll fluctuate how much water's coming through. 
Um, so we do have to keep an, keep an eye on it. I mean, try yeah. not to expel too much water during shows. Um, but yeah, we're on top of it. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy like to see something like that and just, yeah, not many people would be able to say they've done it, let alone doing it for a business and that sort of thing as well. But yeah, there's, yeah, there's very few in the world that are crazy enough to, to do what we do, but yeah, I'm an adrenaline chaser and yeah. like for me, the sketchier, the better. Um, yeah, I'll fly my I'll fly my jetpack anywhere I can get a jet, <laughs> jet ski in. Um, but that's what I find fun. Is that the first mm. question when someone's like, "Oh, like what? What's the what's the smallest backyard size?" You're like, "How big's yours?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Like we, yeah, the we want to get as crazy and sketchy as as we can. Yeah. Um, like even getting down to like a pool that only the jet ski fits in. Like I'll fly outside the pool the whole time. Like, does the ski <laughs> does the ski move around at all? as it's sucking that water in yes yeah, so the jet ski just follows where where you go right um, it's got no control over itself um, which is another thing that like one of the biggest skills with the shows that we're doing is you really have to monitor that thing uh, and control where it goes because um, if you don't keep an eye on it and you fly over the jet ski with your driver on it blow the hand off the trigger you you're going down mm. or you could completely block out the space you have available to fly in the pool um yeah it's it's fun yeah <laughs> so do you, do you have any of those coming up or while while he's driving um goal for world champs is on it's been put on the back burner sort of thing um so i did a show last night at the marriott yep um yeah it's just really what i can fit into my schedule at the moment um, like it is like a, like a side hustle, a bit of extra cash. Um, and yeah, I just get still get complete enjoyment out of every time I fly. So mm. I take any opportunity I can to fly. Um, but yeah, the number one focus is all the long drive training stuff at, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, mm. epic. Well, I know um, you mentioned that being your side hustle. Now your main thing, expect to win management company. Yeah. Talk us through this. You got, you got a lot going on yeah you're a busy man yeah um yeah there's another business on top of that actually yeah. as well too um so before i started my own businesses um my graduate position after i left bond was at an online betting agency called top sport um so i was a corporate bookie for six years um that was a lot of fun challenging um mentally intense um yeah it was a cool industry to be in as a, a young bloke um, that likes sport and racing and stuff like that. Mm. Um, hell, all mates were jealous of the job and like yeah. asking for tips and stuff like that all the time. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, the last two years, I started to fall out of love with it. Uh, found a morally morally challenging industry in the end. Right. Because um, for the betting agency to do well, like just everyday blokes are having to go broke and and do their ass and like that's what in that environment that's what you're cheering for yeah mm. and like we had to do a lot of research on our clients so we had a complete understanding on their skill set as a punter um so we knew a lot of background knowledge on them but even guys in your own industry working in other companies like you knew how much money they were making and you're seeing these guys do their year salary in one or two months wow uh, like it that side of it is is crazy like your perspective on money changes completely um yeah so that that's why i was was hard to hard to deal with but then just the the long hours uh and the intensity 
of the work when you're there. Yeah. Like you're having to make split second decisions that cost or make your company million, two million bucks. Mm. Uh, from a little little office in, in Tweed Heads as a young bloke. I mean, that just adds up and takes its toll. Yeah. Um, and then just being around betting constantly is, is pretty toxic for your, for your mindset. Like, it doesn't matter if you're a, a good punter, you're a bad punter, you're working at a betting agency. It was literally every hour of every day was consumed by betting, like work and, and own punting wise. And then even when you weren't doing those, you were checking results of every sporting game mm. ever. You're, you're keeping on top of player news, player movements, injuries, stuff like that. So it's like you couldn't get away with. Like it was, it was an all-encompassing job. Um, so yeah, I got out of that and then took a 12-month break to work out what I wanted to do. And then um, one of my best mates is a professional jockey, uh, Luke Dittman. Um, his dad's Mick Dittman, who's very well known in the, the racing circles. And Luke and I had a conversation saying how he wanted to make more money from his racing without having to ride more. Um, so he spoke, I asked him about like sponsorships and endorsements and, and stuff like that. And he's like, I'd love them, but I don't know how to go about that. He's like, I didn't graduate school. Uh, don't have that kind of knowledge. And I was like, I'll handle it for you. I'll handle all your social media. I'll work on your brand deals, your sponsorship, stuff like that. Um, so I took that over for him. And from there, the business just grew by word of, my ma- word of mouth. Mm-hmm. The next client after that saw what I was doing. I went in for a meeting. He goes, what are you doing for him or what did you do for me? And contract was done basically on the spot. Um, and that's how I've got all my clients in that. Um, so I, basically the company specializes in social media management with a niche focus on the horse racing industry. Uh, so my clients are trainers, bloodstock agents, jockeys, uh, stuff like that. Um, yeah. So really specialized in that in that niche um, but also looking to expand into the the sporting industry mm-hmm. um, so I was fortunate to pick up a contract with a motor racing team about 12 months ago mm-hmm. uh, really talented upcoming two brothers this is Ellery racing yeah Ellery yep. racing that's um Tristan and Dalton Ellery mm-hmm. uh, their dad Steve is a legend in Australian motor racing he used to race supercars stuff like that so the family's had strong roots in the motor racing industry. Uh, and they came to me because they wanted to take their careers to the next level. Um, and motor racing costs a lot of money, mm. um, which if you don't come from a, a well-off background, will come from sponsors. Um, so the same reason uh, as Luke, they wanted help with branding and sponsorship. So I took over all their social media and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I was managing them for a while as my like first transition in into the sport sporting industry um they unfortunately lost their grandfather who was a big backer and supporter of their racing so the racing is kind of taking a backward step so that project's on hold at the moment um but that was yeah my first taste working in the sporting industry with social media and branding and and really enjoyed it like being behind the scenes in the in those motor races was was awesome like it was so cool being being involved with that um like the last big race i did before they put on hold was the bathurst six hour 
and yeah, being in the in the pits and around all the the athletes and and stuff like that was was awesome and definitely something I want to look more into in, in the future. Did you get a, like a new understanding of? just what it takes to actually be a driver like i remember seeing back in the day remember when they used to do the um like the australia's greatest athlete and like yeah. craig lounge yeah, yeah. and all that was on there and then you're like oh why is there a race car driver and then you see like what they can do like they're sitting in 50 degree heat for like hours on end and that sort of thing was it awesome to see what actually goes into being a driver yeah 100 percent. and something like an event like the bath is six hour that really really stood out to me because um, it's an event where you get a bunch of professional drivers joining teams for the race uh, and then you have them up against amateur drivers and like you see the professionals get out of the car and they're completely fine look like they do another stint and there's amateur drivers laying on the ground almost passing out wow. um, as well as just the, the consistency of their lap times like professionals going out there and having a tenth of a second difference between between every lap knocking it out for two to three hours and the amateurs are, are fluctuating a lot more mm. like yeah the i couldn't imagine what it'd be like in the car in the intensity that they they drive at like driving on the edge like in that race for two to three hours yeah because that's notoriously one of the toughest tracks in that, australia for walking that track before the the race which was crazy like you can't get a complete understanding of what that track is on tv yeah mm. like the the speeds that they're driving across the top of that track like those some of those corners look a lot wider than they are <laughs> this year. they're not like, and then they somehow managed to squeeze like two cars in yeah. there because they're that that good but yeah. yeah it's it's amazing when you you do see them like blow up even if it's they've clipped each other and they've come off the course you can see that passion behind them when they're when they're getting all fired up because yeah. like of how much training how much effort and and to be even doing like a three-hour section or something and you you're holding on to it for so well and then someone just goes and clips in like all that work and yeah. effort's going like it's, yeah exactly yeah it's pretty pretty high intensity i stuff. saw something with like um lewis hamilton and he was saying obviously like how demanding on the body it is but then similar to like horse racing he's like you need to be a certain weight because if you if you have like an extra half a kilo on you could lose say a second that could really lose you the race yeah so i got a i got a lot of mates that are professional jockeys and seeing what they put their bodies through every week just to to make weight is it's crazy mm. the the effort they have to put through like my best mate luke he's what you classify as a heavy jockey in australia um, at 60 kilos yeah right it's like if he has to get down to 56 kilos for a saturday and like you're already looking at him and there's no fat on him mm. so he has to just go waste and sweat in a bath for three four hours on a friday night and then a saturday morning to drop those four kilos when you when you were competing with jiu-jitsu did you were you cutting much for your no so yeah far beyond hand and always if you're pinning it your white and blue belt you shouldn't be you shouldn't be dropping weight yeah um so no i always just fought it whatever weight i felt felt comfortable yeah so, yeah i've never had to to cut weight fortunately to, to deplete yourself for something like of a yeah an athletic endeavor like i did i did one comp and i just not so much to get into a different weight. i just had never cut weight before and i was yeah. like i wanted to give it a go as a bit of an extra challenge on top of the competition and mm -hmm. getting into it sucked yeah. i was like i and and it was a terrible 
um, lead up to it of the day because it was right during COVID. So they, they wanted all the little kids to finish up and they wanted to clean the mats. Yeah, and yeah. I wanted to weigh in, yeah. get in there and like replenish myself and drink heaps of water and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And they're like, oh, no, you're going to have to wait. So I don't think I got into weigh-in until like 20 minutes before my first Ooh, match. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I just felt terrible. Yeah. But yeah, to, to drop four kilos is just hectic. Yeah, yeah. it's like he's been, he's doing his, his whole life. So he, he still, but he still battles with it, like, like mentally. Like mm. I, I've seen, I've seen him after some of those weigh sessions and just looks just wrecked. But mm. I mean, that's what you got to do for, for your paycheck and they they make pretty decent money from it so. does he fluctuate up past 60 like is there an off season or is he racing quite often no like? so he's he's racing every week yeah right um he's like at the towards the end of his career now he's only racing one or two days a week so he can kind of like blow out for himself at 60 61 kilos from sunday to thursday yeah and then you know back into it what's the go of um like the horses they ride are they picked up by the owners of the horse or the trainers or can they can they be chosen to ride a horse at any competition um so your jockeys will stay in their like specific jurisdictions mainly and then there's like metro and provincial um they usually stick to their set days of racing uh the owners can have an influence on who they want to ride the horse because they own the horse but the trainers will generally stick with who they know yeah um and like they develop partnerships with specific jockeys and we'll keep those those ones on um and it's also like really political too so yeah right. <laughs> they just instantly draw the draw the line through some jockeys and yeah. only use specific ones what was it like being in an industry where like you've obviously got a lot of activists these days in, in regards to horse and um like greyhound racing and that yeah. sort of thing did that play a part um when you were working as a bookie um, so the activists will only come around once a year and it's in the lead up to Melbourne Cup. Yeah. Um, outside of that, they don't generally care. Um, but yeah, seeing like the all sides of the industry is the, the animals get treated very well. Mm. Um, they get treated better than most children. Um, <laughs> like the, the circumstances surrounding them finishing their racing career varies mm. um and like if they have a severe injury like it sometimes it is better for the, the horse to be put down than put through the struggle of the injury mm. so people have cases in in that regard um greyhound racing you don't really know what's going on there it happens a lot behind closed doors so Cause I, is, I there, is there a lot more that. testing in the horse racing industry than there is in the dogs yeah, yeah. significantly more money behind it it's a it's a massive sport a massive industry that employs thousands and thousands of people across australia mm. um yeah there's testing always done on the horses and the jockeys and looked into the facilities of the trainers so there's a lot of rules and jurisdictions that that go into making sure it's safe and a yeah and a good sport do you think having such a competitive mindset with so many things especially in sport and that do you think that being in that industry as a bookie that was part of the reason as to why you wanted to get out as well it's like because it's just a such a high intensity environment and you're like did you not have a goal out of it or like did what was the main reason you said you, you touched on before that you said you sort of didn't feel morally correct doing it yeah so i mean that yeah see that what you just brought up about like long-term goals in the industry is um like i always 
doesn't matter what I do, I always set my expectations and, and goals high. Um, I was really passionate about the job in the industry. Um, and like I wanted, like my goal was to be like one of the youngest CEOs in the industry. Um, but unfortunately the, the, the company I started at was just a, uh, a, a bit too small. Mm-hmm. Um, so the career progress wasn't quite there. Um, so to make that step up, I'd have to move to Sydney or Melbourne, yep. um, to one of the, one of the bigger companies. Um, and didn't, didn't want to do that for my career. I was, I was very content staying and living on the Gold Coast mm. for my career. Um, did get offered a position in New York. Oh, sure. Um, at a company in the same industry. Um, but turned that down because the, the salary that was on offer for moving all the way over to there wasn't quite worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then... St- does, is is it New York that doesn't they have weird betting rules? Is that Oh don't get me started on American <laughs> betting rules. I don't even have my head entirely wrapped around them because yeah. they're constantly changing. Um but yet legislation did change in America a few years ago. Yep. opening up the market to to betting agencies, but they need something like a partnership with a local casino or racetrack right. to be able to have a betting license. And then there's still only specific states. Um, yeah, so it's like pretty, I, I, pretty I remember complex. I remember hearing on a podcast a little while ago, and they were saying that they had to make they had to make a trip to like New Jersey to then go make a bet just because they wanted to like yeah. like even on their phone the like a certain Wi-Fi won't work on uh, it's like being yeah. in Bali or Complete something ge- and try yeah, to access geo locked. Yeah, 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 it's it's wild. Hey, like you, and the the land of the free. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but that um yeah that market is. It's growing rapidly. It's, yeah, right. It's really interesting seeing where the US betting market is now because it's like exactly where Australia was like 10, 11 years ago. Mm. Like even the type of like entrepreneurial ventures that guys can do in regards to betting, like they're just copying and pasting what was happening in Australia like 10 years ago. Like it's just like rinse and repeat. And they, yeah. they think they're like coming up with all these <laughs> like I'm a genius coming up with this and yeah. like dude we did that in Australia like 10-11 years ago <laughs> um, to touch back on your company expect to win what are some challenges that you find just trying to get endorsements and sponsorships for your clients like what what are some um, situations that you run into um, so the main yeah so working with LA Racing um bringing on sponsorships was like one of the biggest parts of the job. Um, and I'd chased sponsorships before for my own, uh, for jetpacking to go over the world champs. Um, and jetpacking is a small unknown sport, um, but I was able to get that done. So I was like getting sponsorships in the motor racing would be easy. Mm. Um, but I've never run into an industry that's so political and unwilling to help other people yeah right um like because it takes so much money like people don't really want to help others yeah in motor racing i found um so if there's sponsors that are already in the industry with teams they're not gonna jump or add another team onto the books and then bringing new money into motor racing was even more difficult because the the value return for a sponsor in motor racing is 
is so small. Is that because the market's so saturated already? Like there's so many people advertising in it that to get their little space or whatever, is yeah, that kind of why? So that, that's, that's one reason. But then the, the return on viewership and, and time that the logos can be seen and stuff like that just, just isn't, isn't worth it. Mm. Um, it's like the investment. So it's not really an investment for sponsors when it comes to sponsorship. Um, and the the equivalent dollars that they could spend in motor racing, they could spend in in other sports and get and get a return. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was a challenge. It was like one of the biggest challenges in my business career, bringing sponsors on board into into motor racing. Um, yeah, it's something I need to improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting back into that space because um, I'm sure I'll partner up with Ellery Racing again. Uh, the two sons are highly talented and deserve a long career in in motor racing. They just need to find the right way to get back into the into the sport and find cars to race. Yeah. Do you find doing these sort of challenges and like physical pursuits, like even if it's BJJ or the goal from such a young age, do you think that sort of um, like cross fertilizes with the the business aspect of your life as well? Um, yeah, definitely in terms of like work ethic and like not giving up and and just pursuing something um but one thing in business it's separate from like sport is like building relationships and and networking um i've got really good relationships with all my clients and i've got connections everywhere now through the through the networking i've done and that that's just completely vital and fundamental for business these days is networking relationship building um which is yeah separate to the sport but you can definitely apply your your work ethic that you have for training into business obviously comes in a different form but it's just that that mindset like it's it's no coincidence that you see elite athletes thriving in business after their career or during their career because they just know what it what it takes to to be the best and Mm. It's business, but in business, you can still be the best. Yeah, epic. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your time. We do have two questions that we always ask our guests as well. Yeah. First being that, do you recall a favorite failure that's benefited you in the long run? Yeah, so that was that was a tough one trying to think about because I, I, I initially couldn't think of like too many failures that come to mind. I think I just... None that you want to tell your mum. Yes, I see it a bit differently, not like not as a failure. Um, I think like the most recent time, the failures that I come across were actually in BJJ and losing matches or or losing events. I was obviously going in there with the mindset that I was going to win. There's just so many variables in a BJJ event. And yeah, sometimes you don't come out with the, come out with a win, um, but it pushes you to be better and yeah. And train harder, um, which improves your mindset. So I think, yeah, those fa- those little failures in BJJ definitely contribute to something greater. It's such an amazing sport because, like, for one, not many times you have some sweaty stranger just like <laughs> laying all over yeah. you and that sort of thing. And it's, I guess, the the space for, oh, and at least for myself, like the space for growth mentally is just like it's second to none in any other sports I've experienced because there's just nothing like it and it's yeah going in a competitive environment on top of that as well 
it's so cool like it's the biggest recommendation to so many people even if they're not interested in martial arts or whatever they don't watch ufc it's like it's so good to learn things about yourself by just mm. getting in a vulnerable position when someone's trying to strangle you yeah 100 i couldn't i couldn't speak more highly of bj bjj as a mm. as a sport or as a hobby like you you pick up a second family that'll do anything for you um but then you just you just pick up a discipline and and work ethic like i was always happy with mine before going into bjj um but i feel like bjj alone has taken my mindset to to another level um and just the, the support you have from everyone behind you there that um like you can feel it and it, it's definitely beneficial mm. and they're all yelling stuff out in portuguese <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> or fabio just grunting at you yeah. <laughs> not knowing why you don't understand <laughs> yeah no it's it's pretty epic stuff even being where we met and like that like you were saying before with the networking and it's just yeah it's it's such a team sport for something that's an individual practice yeah. sort of thing so yeah, yeah but uh, last question is if you had a billboard that everyone could see what would it say yeah so I think I'd keep mine pretty simple like I think a lot of people would use it to kind of like gloat about their achievements and and highlight what they're doing but I, like I keep that pretty under wraps like only those closest to me really know everything I've achieved in life um, so I think I just keep it simple just like good picture of me name and then just world champion entrepreneur um, and then just the the phrase that I live by is expect to win. Um, so it's my business name, but it's also yeah life motto. So yeah. just going every into everything doesn't matter what it is with the expectation that you you're gonna win. Yeah, nice. epic. Well, mate, appreciate your time. No it's good to see you again. Me on. It was. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Now, twenty sixth of September. Twenty sixth of September. Get around uh, it. in Vegas. Go so, knock some uh, balls. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be live stream. So yeah, come out watch watch support. Yeah, sick. We'll get a link up and see what we can do. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. So, thank you.